things. Uh, We're going to get into the sermon now, Nehemiah chapter 9. Hopefully you have it in your Bible, in your app, whatever the case may be. If you are looking in your Bible, it's Ezra, then Nehemiah. And we are in week 8, and so if you've missed a few weeks or if this is your first time, I just want to catch you up briefly because you've missed a lot. And so uh, the first five chapters of the book of Nehemiah are, are really... This man, Nehemiah, who's a Jewish person living in another place, coming home to his hometown, Jerusalem, rallying his hometown brothers and sisters and helping them rebuild their city and rebuild a wall. And it's a lot of opposition externally, a lot of internal doubt that takes place over those five chapters, but in chapter six, they still finish the wall. It takes them 52 days. It's an incredible accomplishment. They all come together to do this. God leads Nehemiah to to lead out in this project, and they rebuild the wall. But the wall's rebuilt, the city's rebuilt, but the people now need to be rebuilt. And so in chapter 7, you see this start to happen. You see a lot of names. It's one of those chapters. There's several with a lot of names in the book of Nehemiah. The reason for that in chapter 7 is all these people that have been exiled, kicked out of their hometown are now returning because the wall's built. The city is established so people can come back in. So they begin to not just build walls, but build a community of people in chapter 7. In chapter 8, last week, Rick preached for us and did a great job of talking about how they read God's word, how they spent large portions of the day reading God's word. That was their foundation that they were going to build this new community on. And then we come to chapters 9 and 10 And that's the response to God's word. And that's where we are this morning. And as they respond, they have to deal with some of their past in order to move forward and build this new community. And I was thinking about it. It's really hard for us to deal with our past, isn't it? I mean, finance is a great great example. Uh, Any sins of our past, uh, a sexual history that we have, uh, whatever the case may be, hardships growing up in our family, we don't like to deal with those things in our past, do we? We we like to maybe push it to the side, hope it'll go away. We like to maybe manage it and try to control it. But we don't actually like to confront our our past. But as we look at this, this is what they're going to do is confront our past. And I was thinking about it. I shared with you guys a few months ago uh, that my family and I entered into a new territory. We got bikes as a family. So we have three kids. They're little kids, but they're growing up. And and we're the family now who's in the neighborhood riding our bikes around around the neighborhood. And it's a weird place to be for us. We're not used to that. But we're starting to embrace it. And I told you guys, because of this, we started a bike club. Don't be jealous. <laughs> because if we're going to ride bikes around the neighborhood, we got to start a bike club. And I told you we gave a first rule to the kids about the bike club, and that's you don't talk about bike club. <laughs> and to be honest with you, they still don't understand what that means. But they're embracing it so much so that the other day we were in a cul-de-sac, like hanging out like a little gang, like a little posse in our bike club, and we're talking, and, and Ashwin's like, you know, Dad, first rule of bike club, we don't talk about bike club. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And Neela, my older daughter, she's like, yeah, but Dad, you broke that rule. You talked about it in church. Like, you, t- you talked about it with a lot of people. And so they, they, they fully embrace this. I guess I'm breaking the rule again. Sorry about that. But we have this bike club, and I started noticing recently my son, who's four, he stopped riding his bike as much. He didn't want to go out as much. And so I asked him, buddy, why, why don't you want to ride your bike? You love riding your bike. Like, what happened? And he started to talk about this time he fell. 
Uh, and there's a lot of places to fall on a bike for a four-year-old, but there's one specific place. There's a trail that goes over uh, our cul-de-sac, and it goes down, up a hill, and then down a hill, and he goes down the hill, and he falls. Now, as you picture this, uh, he's riding a bike with training wheels. And, and so don't picture, like, huge wipeout, right? He's not going that fast. Like, picture, like, a slow lean <laughs> that you just can't, you see coming, but you can't do anything about it. That's what he experienced. And listen, I think that may be worse, right? And so a four-year-old, that's traumatic for him. And so we're getting ready to go ride our bikes, and guess what he does? He doesn't want to go outside and ride that trail. What he wants to do is ride his bike around the kitchen because it's tile floor. Because it's smooth. There's no dips, right? There's no jumps. And he can ride around the kitchen. And the worst that could happen is he runs into the fridge, which he does, right? And, and so I go to him and I say, bud, you got to understand, like, it's so much better to ride your back, bike outside. Like, it's so much more fun to ride your bike outside. Let's, let's get back out there. And he's like, yeah, dad, but I know. But I fail. And, and so I say, okay, well, let's just talk through that. Let's deal with that. Let's deal with that thing that happened. Like, listen, I fell when I used to ride my bike when I was your age. Uh, I got hit by a car when I used to ride my bike when I was your age. That didn't really help that much. That was too far, right? <laughs> but I was trying to relate as a dad. Um, and I still, you know, every once in a while, I fall off my bike. Like, it happens. Let's deal with that. And so finally, we start working through that. And he's like, okay, okay, I think I can do it again. And so, so we got back out there. We dealt with it. We got back out there. We got him back on his bike. We worked on the trail. We worked on his brakes, right, how to do that. We worked on his balance, how to do that. And, and he began to change and get better at riding his bike. But you see, as I thought about that, I thought, man, that's... That's a lot of us in life, right? With our past, with things we've done, with things that have been done to us, I mean, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to get back on the bike because we think, man, I, I fell off last time. Some of you are here and you're new to church or maybe you're coming back to church and you think, man, I, I've confronted things in my past before in the church with God. It didn't go well. I was shamed. I was, I was guilty all the time. I was condemned. I don't want to do that again. I don't go to God. It doesn't seem like he's there. It doesn't seem like he knows what's going on in my life. And so we think, I don't really want to deal with that. And here's the problem with that. If we never deal with it, if we just ride our, our bike around on the kitchen floor and control it, then we never move forward, right? We, we never get back on the bike. We never move forward in our life and, and begin to follow God again and connect with others relationally again because we, do, we don't want to deal with our past. And so what we see in Nehemiah is they deal with their past. And so we're going to look at how they do that, how they confront it directly, and then how that leads them to a change moving forward. And so I want you to look at that with me. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, Julian set it up. Uh, he talked about this beginning to confront their past as they, they fast and they put on sackcloth. Again, if you're new to the Bible, new to church, that's a sign of mourning. It's a, an external sign that they would put on of an internal brokenness. And so it would be similar to today if you were to wear all black. Uh, people would know, man, he, he's, he's mourning. Uh, and so it's a sign of mourning, a sign of repentance. And why are they mourning? Verse 2 tells us they're confessing their sins. And so they're looking at the harsh realities of their past. 
Verse 6, they launch into a prayer about those sins, about that confession. I want you to see three things about this prayer as we get into it. One, this is the Levites praying this prayer. These are the assistants to the priests. And, And as far as we know, it seems like they're praying this prayer publicly collectively, it's written down for us, right? We're reading this prayer. And so you have to picture this. This isn't a a private moment off to the side talking about their past. They are confronting their past publicly with other people around. They're dealing with it. Uh, Two, it's the longest prayer in all of the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 9. The longest prayer of all, the, uh, all of the Bible. And, and what you see in Nehemiah chapter 9 is it's a summary of God's people. And so they begin to recount not just their individual past, but the past of their ancestors. And so if, you're, if you are new to the Bible, unfamiliar with the story of the Israelites, you could literally read chapter 9 and get familiar. Because he walks through Abraham and Moses and all these events as they chronicle their past. And so that's the prayer that we're walking into. And the first point I want you to see is that amidst their confession, they celebrate God. They celebrate God. That before they get to their story, they go to God's story. And so let's look at it together. Uh, Starting in verse 6 in this prayer, they begin to say, you. They say you about 30 times just in this chapter alone. When they say you, when they say you, you, you made the heaven, you made the earth, all these things, you, you, they're talking about God. And so they're talking about God about their past. They're talking to God about their past. And that's interesting as I thought about it in my life and in our lives. When we typically deal with our past, we talk to everybody but God, right? And we, we, we gossip about it. We talk to our spouse about it. But we don't want to go to God about it because we're unsure that God can handle it. We're unsure, like, God, are you really good? I mean, I know I may be singing some songs about that. I've heard, read that, heard that before. Are you really gracious? I mean, maybe I'm the exception. Maybe this situation is the exception. But notice what they do. They go directly to God. You, over 30 times in this passage alone, they're going directly to God with their past. And, and here's some things they, they say about God, they declare about God. Look at the text with me. Starting in verse 6, it says, you made the heaven and the earth, so they celebrate God as creator. Verse 7, it says, you chose Abram, that's the story of Abraham from Genesis. Verse 8, he says, you have kept your promise to Abraham and the Israelites, so they're celebrating God's faithfulness. Verse 10, a little bit later, you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. So now they've moved on to Moses, and they celebrate God's rescue from slavery in Egypt. Verse 12, they continue in that story. It says, you led them fire by night, cloud by day, so they celebrate his guidance. Verse 14 and 15, you made known to them your holy Sabbath, so they celebrate rest and trust in God. Verse 15, you gave them bread. They celebrate God's provision, so they celebrate over and over and over. As they chronicle their past, as they're about to get into some sins of their past, They start with a celebration of who God is. You need to know that's really important because we can't just focus on our story. We have to look at the story of God. Because oftentimes we forget that in the midst of our past, don't we? As we look at the sins of our past, as they're about to do that, chapter 9, they start out mourning over that. They put on the sackcloth. They're fasting. It's a big, big deal what they're about to enter into and what they've done. 
but they don't forget about the goodness of God. We often do, don't we? In the midst of sin, in the midst of thinking about our past, we don't think about the goodness of God. We think oftentimes, like, maybe God did this to me. Maybe God is evil. Maybe I'm not the problem. Maybe God is the problem. Maybe God doesn't really care, and we, we don't tend to, to reflect on God's goodness, his grace, his faithfulness, his provision, all of these things that they begin to recount, we often forget in the midst of our sin, and we don't need to do that. In the midst of your sin, as you begin to address it and confront it, you need to also celebrate God. Because listen, God hasn't changed. You may have, but God hasn't. His character, his nature, his person, his work is still constant, even amidst your sin, even amidst your past, whatever it is. And they recognize that, and that's how they start off this prayer, that God's faithfulness isn't nullified by our unfaithfulness. It's just not. God is not dependent on us. He's independent of us. So he's the same in the midst of your confession, and they they recognize that. And so we have to get to the point where we recognize that, that God is creator, as they did, that God is rescuer, that God is provider. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, financially, sexually, spiritually, all of these things in your past, no matter what those things are, God is still provider. God is still protector of you. God is still faithful. All the things that they declare about their God, it's the same God for you today. And we should declare those in the midst of addressing our past. And then when we're able to do that, actually deal with it, then we can get back on the bike, right? Then we can get back in following Jesus and get back in our relationships and doing what he has called us to do. And that's what we see them begin to do. As they celebrate God, they're able to confront the past. And that's what we see in our second point, Nehemiah 9, 16 through 37. And we see it. I'd love for you to look at this with me. We see it in verse 16, the first word. They've been talking about who God is, all these yous, and it switches. And the switch, you'll notice, is this word, but. It's an important word, but. We're transitioning from, God, you did all these great things. This is who you are, to they. They is the Israelites. They is the generations of sin that they're about to recount. And that's what they get into. It says they acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck. Later it says they turned a stubborn shoulder. They thought they knew better, right? They stiffened their neck. God, I I know you say these things, but but we know some things too, and we're going to go our own way. And that's what they do. Verse 17, it says they refused to obey. Verse 26, they were disobedient, so they rebelled against God. Verse 18, they make a golden calf. And and so not only do they say, we know better than you, God, they say, we're going to find a new God altogether because we can control that God. Verse 33, they sum it up perfectly. They say, you have dealt with us faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Verse 36 and 37, at the end of the chapter, they give the results of this, their present day, that all of these generational sins, all of the sins that they've committed, all these things that they're recounting, This is how it's ended up. They're slaves, and so they're still under Persian rule. They're not in control. They're they're slaves. God has allowed this to happen, to discipline them because of their sin. So they're slaves, and it says they are in great distress, verse 37. 
And so notice, they confront their past with confession. They confront their past with confession. That's how we confront our past. If you're new to the church and you wonder, like, well, is everybody here perfect, right? I mean, do you follow Jesus? I hear all the time, like, believe in Jesus, go to heaven. And I don't hear a lot about the in-between. If that's you and you wonder, maybe you're sitting here this morning, you think, well, maybe everybody's got everything together, You need to know that, yes, we follow Jesus. Yes, we get to go to heaven. Yes, it's an amazing gift that he gives us, but we still fail. We still have a sin nature. We still have our flesh, and we go back to that. And God has to bring us back in the fold, and the way he does that is through confession. And here's what confession is, the heart of confession, and we see it, a great example in this passage, is you agree with God. What is confession? You agree with God. That you call sin what God calls sin. That it is what it is, right? I think that's the only appropriate time to use that phrase. But that's what it is. You you call it what it is. It is what it is. You call it exactly what God calls it. You, You name it. You name specific sins in your life. I know you're thinking, Tim, why would anybody want to do this? Because what we're going to see in this passage, what we see throughout the Bible, is this is God's method of restoration. This is how when we're not perfect people, after we follow Jesus and we do stumble and we do go our own way, this is how he brings us back. This is how we experience his goodness and his grace and his mercy, and that's what we see in this passage. But most of us, because... We think of confession, we're like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to actually confront my past with confession. Most often, what we do is we either downplay or distract. I think a lot of us do that. We either, we either downplay our sin or we distract from our sin. We, we downplay our sin. I had a mentor in college who was really impactful in my life, specifically in this way. That as we would talk about life and relationships, and I would talk about sins I was struggling with, I would say things like, You know, I just want to speak my mind. And he would say, Tim, don't you mean you gossip? (laughs) I'm like, no, that sounds worse. I just like to speak my mind. And I would say things like, you know, I mean, this girl, and just we messed around a little bit. And he would say, he would stop me, Tim, hold on a second. You, You mean you lusted after her. You mean you committed adultery with your heart and mind. I don't really like I don't really like talking about it like that. I mean, yeah. I mean, we just, you know, we went over the line, right? Like, we crossed some boundaries, right? That's that's cool, right? And he's like, no, no, no. you got to call it what Scripture calls it. Uh, We talk about spending money, getting out of hand with that. And and he would stop me and say, Tim, do do you see any greed in that? I don't know if I'm greedy. I mean, I just like to to go to a mall and buy everything I see. I don't don't know. Don't judge me, you know, like, and he was really helpful because I began to see, and I honestly, I wasn't thankful for it at the time, right? I hated that. I hated talking to him about my sin for a little while because I was like, listen, you're going to name it and, and claim it and all these things that I don't want to address that. I don't want to really deal with that. But listen, that is confession, that when you see God and celebrate him as significant in your life, you begin to see how significant your sin is. 
as you look at God, that he is provider, that he's faithful, that he's gracious, that he's merciful, that all these things that they talk about, when you look at that God and then you look at your sin, it's no longer just messing around. It's no longer just what I like to speak my mind. It's no longer, well, I just, I just get out of hand and spend a little bit too much money. It's no longer that. It's more than that, and we have to call it that, and that's confession. And God begins to work through confession to bring about change. And if we never deal with it, if we never actually confront it, then we're, we're always going to be in the kitchen riding our bike across the tile, right? We're never going to get back out there. You're never going to start serving in the church again. You're never going to start leading your spouse in your marriage again until you actually deal with what you need to deal with. That's how God set it up. That's the whole Bible. The whole Bible is God pointing out our sin and love and discipline because he wants what's best for you. He points it out. We have to wrestle with that. We have to name it and call it exactly what he calls it and deal with the ugliness of it so we can receive his grace and mercy through it, so he can change us and conform us to his image. Listen, that's what Easter is all about. Easter's in a couple weeks. We're going to celebrate Good Friday and Easter, April 14th and 16th. The reason that's such a big deal, it's not just the Super Bowl for church. I hear people say that. I don't really like that. It's not that. It's I don't know what it is. It's like the biggest, the most pinnacle event of all of history, right? It's not a Super Bowl. It's way bigger than that. It's the turning point for all of history. Why? Because listen, God sends Jesus to take all of our sin, all of the ugliness, all the actual words that we don't want to deal with. He takes it all, all of God's wrath for that. He dies a death in our place. He sheds blood to forgive us of that. If it was just messing around, if it was just speaking our mind, if it was just spending, getting out of hand, Good Friday wouldn't be that big of a deal. Jesus wouldn't have needed to die, right? But it is a big deal because we have a holy and just God, but a God who also loves us and sends his son Jesus. That's why Easter is such a big deal because he dies, he resurrects and gives power over sin. But it first starts with confession. And that's how God has wired it. And so we can't downplay our sin, but we also can't distract from our sin. And I think a lot of us do this. I think in our day, this is one of our biggest issues because of this. Do you guys have one of these? Yeah? Maybe it's just me. I, I often go to this for distraction. Do you? A, a lot of people in our, in our day go to this for distraction, particularly in the midst of things we don't want to confront, right? I was thinking about in my life, this last week, I got impatient and got angry with my kids. I was stressed out about some stuff with work. I was thinking through that stuff. They were coming and, and whining about some other stuff. And in a moment, I got impatient and I got angry with my kids. And a few minutes later, I just went over to the chair and I just started doing this. And my wife is like, Tim, what are you looking at? And I said, I'm watching football highlights. And even as I said that, I realized how dumb that was. I don't know if you follow sports, but we're in March. 
Today's opening day, baseball. Baseball fans, right? Is that true? Opening day, I saw some Yankee jerseys and things like that. Diamondbacks, I think I saw one of those. Um, it's not football season, but this week, she's like, Tim, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm watching these football highlights. And I'm like, she's like, Tim, it's March. And I'm like, no, baby, I'm getting ready for the draft. It's a month away. And, I, and I, like I said, as I said that, I realized how dumb that was. Did I care? Do I care about the draft? I do. But, but in that moment, I didn't care about the draft. I didn't really want to watch those football highlights. What I wanted to do was get away from the ugliness of getting angry and impatient with my kids and sinning against my kids. And so I grabbed this, and I just start scrolling. And I don't know if this is going to surprise you, but that didn't help anything. <laughs> it didn't help anything, right? Like when I put my phone down, my kids were still kind of upset and sad. When I put my phone down, my wife was still kind of like, what are you doing? And so you know what, what did help is I went to my kids and I said, hey, dad shouldn't have yelled. I'm sorry. I love you. You know, sometimes I get impatient. Sometimes I uh, disobey God, and I, I, I go the other way, and that was Daddy doing that, and I love you, and we talked through it. And, and that actually helped because it's confession. What doesn't help is downplaying our sin and distracting from our sin. But man, do we do that. Man, do we do that in our culture. And listen, here's the problem. We're not moving forward. We're stuck in the same cycle of sin that we were stuck in when we were a teenager, we're struggling with the same things in our marriage that we struggle with during our first year of marriage. Why? Because we're not addressing it. Listen, it is God's grace to you to address it, to deal with it in confession. That's the only way we see a change begin to take place. And that's what happens with these people in Nehemiah. Look at the text again with me. Amidst all this, they commit to change. We see that at the very end of chapter 9. They end this prayer, and then they say this. They say, because of all this, we make a firm covenant. Now, a covenant in the Bible is a commitment before God. What's interesting about this word for covenant in the Hebrew, it's, it's slightly different from other words that you see. It has more of an emphasis on faithfulness. And I was thinking about that. I think maybe why that is, is, is we just recounted some of Israel's unfaithfulness, how they rebelled, how they made this golden calf, they made their own God, how, how God continuously provided for them, but they continuously went their own way. And you see, and, and, and it said it earlier in the passage, it said, God, you were faithful, we were wicked. And so there's this whole paradigm of faithfulness that's playing out in this text. And I think that's why the writer uses this word, for covenant, it emphasizes faithfulness, that they look at their past, they're dealing with it, they're looking at a God who's still been gracious to them. I don't know if you noticed that, but in several of these verses, as they are confessing, they say, God, you are ready to forgive. Verse 17, you're gracious, you're merciful. Verse 20, they say, you gave us your good spirit. Verse 23, they say, you multiplied them, you blessed them. Verse 27, you heard them. That as they begin to recount their unfaithfulness, they recount God's faithfulness amidst it all. Those two are, are happening at the same time, that God's not changing. Remember, we are changing, that God's character and nature stays the same. And so I think they, they emphasize this, this covenant 
of faithfulness because they look at everything that's happened. Now they're slaves. Now they're in distress. This isn't working, right? And so they say, God, because of all this, we want to make a firm covenant of you, with you. We want to actually try being faithful to you. The unfaithfulness thing that our parents tried, that they tried before them, that's not working. We're going to try a covenant of faithfulness. And that's what they do. They get serious and specific about their change. You need to know that once we've celebrated God, once we've confronted our sin, we need to get serious and specific about committing to change. That's what we see happen. That while we do need to confess, we don't stop there, right? If we stop at confession, you know this. I mean, sometimes we do this, right? Even in something like marriage, we say, I know, I know I need to take out the trash. Do you start taking out the trash? No. Next week, I know, I know, I know I need to do that. Well, what, what good is that ultimately if you just confess it, but you actually don't take out the trash? Right? That means your wife still has to do that. And that doesn't work out well. So we have to actually change, right? That's repentance, that we confess we acknowledge it before God, and then we turn, and we actually start to change. And that's what they begin to do, and they're serious about it. They make a covenant before God. They're serious about changing. I remember when my wife and I, uh, two years into marriage, went to India. Uh, she's from India, went to like two weddings there. It was an amazing time, but it was definitely a different experience. And before we were going on the trip, I like to do research. I like to figure everything out beforehand. And as we're doing research, talking to her, her whole family, they start to tell me every once in a while, and they just kind of slide it in under something else. They start to say things like, you know, Tim, they let animals run around over there because they're like gods, right? So they have like a cow that's a god, and so there's cows in the median. I don't know if you've been to India. And they also said there's, there's sometimes there's wild monkeys, and sometimes they'll sit outside a store, and you'll go in a store, and you'll come back out with something, and they'll, they'll jump and get your stuff. Like, this is just, this is happening in India, right? And so I became fascinated with that. And when we went to India, I just thought, I want to see these monkeys. <laughs> like, I want to have an encounter with a monkey. I mean, who, you, you can't do that here. Like, they're in the zoo behind a cage. Like, I want to experience that. And so we go over there, and everywhere we go, I'm like, we're going to see some monkeys. Where are the monkeys? And Jay is like, quiet down with the monkeys. We're here for a wedding. <laughs> it's two years in a marriage. She's like, who is this guy? Um, but we go to this temple, uh, one of our tour sites, and we go, and we're walking around outside, and there's a tour guide with a camera, and he says, hey, do you want to come over and take some pictures with the monkeys? Dream realized. Okay. And so I say, heck yes, we do. And so we walk over, and we start to see the monkeys. So I'm like, Jay, look at all those little monkeys, and there's mama monkeys and baby monkeys. It's an amazing sight. And we walk over, and the guy tells us, all right, here's what we're going to do. It's me, my wife, and a few of our cousins. And... He says, here's what we're going to do, and I went first. He says, you're going to hold out some hand, uh, food in your hand, and you're going to kneel down on one knee like this, and you're going to hold out some food in your hand, and this monkey, he's just going to jump up on your shoulder, and then he's just going to eat the food. It's going to be great, right? And so I do that, and it is great. It, it's everything I dreamed of, <laughs> right? And as it's the next person's turn, my wife is up next. I'm, he's like, all right, you're done, next person up. And so I just, I just took my hand away. Well, that was a no-no, uh, because this monkey went from Curious George to Caesar from Planet of the Apes. You know what I'm saying? 
I mean, this monkey like got mad. He did that, like right on my hand. And like, I, I was so scared. Like, I didn't know, like, am I going to die at the hand of a monkey right now? Like, is this planet of the apes? I didn't know. And so luckily he calms me down and uh, we have a picture of this. And so it really happened. I should probably have it up here, but I don't. Um, but he calms me down. He's like, hey, don't jerk your hand away so fast. That, obviously, the monkeys do not like that. Uh, just take it away slowly. He, he distracted the monkey, uh, got some food, and, and worked it out. But here's what's crazy is what happened next. What happened next is my wife and her cousins, one by one, did the same thing. And honestly, even now, we just talked about this recently, we thought, why? <laughs> why? Why did you do it next? I mean, we were all like, oh my gosh, you could have gotten killed by that monkey. And then we're like, do-do-do, like, yeah, yeah, let me put some food in my hand. Like, why would you do that? And, and, and I was thinking about that. We, we do that with, with sin, don't we? I, I mean, maybe right now you're thinking about sins of your past because we've been talking about it and we've been talking about confession. And you're thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't need to go back there. You're thinking of specific sins in your life. Right now, I don't need to go back there. I don't need to keep doing that. I need to change, right? I need to confess it. I need to do what he's, he's saying to do. I see that. Maybe right now you're seeing that, but how many times on a Monday, in a private moment, on a Wednesday, in a relationship, on a Thursday with your finances, you get away from this place, you get away from God's word, and you just think, I know, I know that almost killed me. I know that almost destroyed my family, but I'm just going to go right back to it. Just line me up. Just, just get the monkey on my shoulder again, right? And we don't commit to serious and specific change. Because in the moment, we just think, well, I don't know. Maybe it's not that bad. I mean, maybe God doesn't really see this as sin. Maybe it is just kind of messing around. Or maybe it is just spending too much or whatever the case may be. However we want to uh, surface level our sin. And we don't commit to serious and specific change. You need to know that's what the... Israelites do. They make a covenant before God. They say, because of all this, because of all this that has happened, we're in great distress. We're slaves. It's not working out. We're not just going to line up and start repeating the same things. They commit to change. And we see what that change is. Look at the text with me. Right off the bat, chapter 10, verse 1, we get these names again. Don't don't check out on me. These names are important. Verse 1, look at the verse. What's the first name in this covenant? What's the first name? Help me out. Nehemiah. Who leads the way in committing to serious change in this covenant before God? Nehemiah. I, I don't know that Nehemiah has done all these things. I don't know that Nehemiah has committed all these acts against God. But he's the leader, and so he leads the way in repentance. You need to know that's the key point of leadership, is walking in repentance. That you don't deny, you don't downplay as a leader, you don't diminish your sin, you lead the way. And that's what Nehemiah does. His name is the first name on this covenant. He says, we're going to get serious about this change. We're not going to keep going back there. We're going to get serious about it. And then everybody follows suit. The first 27 verses of chapter 10 are names pledging their faithfulness to God, that everyone comes together. It's the same way today, that God has given us a gift in the church. 
that, that I, as your pastor, I, yes, I need to lead the way in this, but man, I'm not leading the way in this thing by myself. We are all in this together. And so that we collectively come together around the idea of like, this is who God is, let's celebrate him, but let's also confess who we are, let's also commit to change collectively, and let's be there for one another in that. Let's love one another through that, because we need that. If this is going to happen, if this change is going to be serious, it's got to happen together, and that's what we begin to see in chapter 10. And then it gets specific. They say things like in verse 29, look at that verse. They say they're going to commit to keep God's law given through Moses. And so they're not just going to be specific of like, get self-help, I just need to shape up, right? I just need to self-talk, like when I get up in the morning, I need to write all the declarations down about how good I am. That's not the change, right? What's the change? We're going to look to God's law. We're going to look to God's word. That's the book of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible that they had at the time. And so it's specific. It's not just any change. It's a God-centered change. And then he gives five things. I'm going to run through them really quick, verse 30 through 39. But here's what he tells them. Here's what they say they're going to do in this covenant, rather. The first thing, they're going to prohibit mixed marriages that lead to the worship of other gods. That part of their history was marrying outside of their faith and getting into idolatrous worship. And so they say, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to confess that sin, confront it, and move forward. We're going to prohibit mixed marriages outside of our faith. Number two, they're going to preserve the Sabbath. They're going to trust God with a day of rest. That while everybody else may work seven days, they're going to stop. They're going to rest in honor of trusting God. They're going to do that going forward. Verse three, I mean, sorry, number three, they're going to protect the poor. Number four, they're going to present their firstborn. Two quick things here because this could be confusing. They're going to do that with their child and that they're going to make payment. We see that in Numbers chapter 18. So they're not going to sacrifice their child on the altar. They're not going to kill their child. They're going to make payment for their child. They're going to redeem their child as their firstborn. They're going to make payment before God as part of this covenant. Then they're also going to give up their, their firstborn animal. Number five, they're going to provide money. They're going to tithe. They're going to give their 10%, their first fruits to God financially and to what he's doing. And so they give five things. Prohibit mixed marriages, preserve the Sabbath, protect the poor, present the firstborn, and provide money. They're going to be generous. And they make these specific commitments. And some of you think, well, that... That, that seems different, right? It seems like maybe there would be some other things they would do. But what they're looking at is not just what the world says is, is good to change. They're looking at God's word. And this is what God, God's word had set up. This is how you should operate. This is for your good. And so they begin to say, this is what we are going to do. And listen, we need to make specific changes. They're different, right? Now, now some of them are the same. Right? If, you, if you're not married yet, if you're thinking about getting married, college students, one day when you get married, you need to marry someone who's a believer right? in Jesus. Clarify. Like all the things that you've got on your list, that needs to be at the top. And so some of these things are the same, right? But some of these things are different. But listen, the principle that they need to be specific is not different, right? Like we have to be specific about what needs to change. So it's not 
today, maybe you're thinking this, men, it's not, I need to love my wife better, I need to serve her. No, it's you line up a sitter for Friday night, you take her out on a date, and you buy her flowers. You get them delivered. It's specific change. It's not just, I need to go to God's word more too. I need to read that too. I need to go to God's word and read my Bible more. It's not that. It's I'm going to read this specific passage. I'm going to get the Nehemiah study guide, and I'm going to take five minutes as I start my day, and I'm going to go through those questions. I'm going to sit in that chair. I'm going to get that journal. It's specific commitment to change. It's not I should probably make disciples. It's I'm going to share Jesus with specific friends or family. I'm going to think of one name that I'm going to start praying for, praying over. I'm going to invite them to Easter at Phoenix Bible Church. It's specific, right? Because if it's not specific, nothing ever happens, right? And so it needs to be serious, a covenant before God that's serious. Lead the way in that. Come together around that. And then come up with specific things. You need to do that today. Whatever you're thinking about in your past, as you confess that, you need to come up with specific ways to change. Two things as we close. Two questions I want to give you. How do we live this out? The first question is this. What in your past needs to be confronted? What is that? There should be some things that come to mind. You should name those things, how God names them. You should write those things down. Not so you can torment yourself, not so you can drown in guilt, but so that you can actually experience God's healing and goodness in your life. What needs to be confronted? The second question is, what keeps you from committing to change? Because here's what I know. There's a lot of things going through our minds right now of like, I'm not going to do that. I've tried that before. It doesn't work, Tim. I mean, maybe it works for you because you're a pastor, but it doesn't work for me. And, and you're thinking, I don't know if I can change. Listen, the Israelites experienced generations of the same sins over and over, right? You've experienced maybe a few years of that. If God can change them, he can change you. And listen, we have something they didn't have. We have Jesus Christ. We have the power of the Holy Spirit The New Testament says that the Spirit of God indwells us. It seals us. If you have believed in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, you have that living within you. You have a power that they didn't know. Can God change you in your sin? Absolutely. So what's keeping you from that? What's keeping you from that? I don't know what that is for you. But you need to think through what that is because the reality is what we are going to celebrate in a couple weeks, that changes everything. If we really believe that Jesus died for sin, he put it to death. If we really believe Jesus rose again, that Easter isn't just about pastels and bunnies, if we really believe that, that's not just forgiveness over our past sin, that's power over future sin. So, So what's preventing you from committing to change? Do you really believe that? Do you functionally believe that? Are you walking in that? We have to go back to that. We have to celebrate who God is. We have to confront our sin. We have to commit to serious and specific change. We can do that. Listen, we can do that because of Jesus. And so right now, we're going to respond to God's word. This is what they did. They responded to God's word. We have that same opportunity today. Don't miss that. Don't miss that opportunity in these next few moments to respond to what God is calling you to confront and change in your life. He will do it through you as you step out in faith. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. 
I thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, uh, that we get way more than these guys have. We have 66 books, 40 plus authors, over 1,500 years of truth about who you are, all pointing to Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. God, I pray that we wouldn't miss that opportunity to respond to that, to respond to what you're calling us to do in this specific moment. God, I pray for these men and women that they would step out in faith and do that, that whatever's preventing them from that, maybe it's themselves, maybe it's their past, maybe it's their flesh, maybe it's Satan, that right now there's just spiritual warfare of like, ah, you don't need to confess that. It's not that bad. God, that is, that is evil, and I pray in the name of Jesus that you would, you would cast that out of this place that you would remove doubt, that you would put in its place faith in you, that you can forgive, you can change us, and that we would walk in that together as the body of Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.